I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Fritnach, and this episode I'm asking, what happens when you take a censor to court? It's 1937, And in a London courtroom, Professor William McGuinness, a member of the censorship board, has taken the stand to explain why he thought a banned book was indecent. This is a pretty exceptional moment in the history of Irish censorship, so let's embrace our true crime side and see how Professor McGuinness ended up being interrogated by one of the more famous London barristers, Sir Patrick Hastings. This dispute centred on a novel by Patrick Malloy called Jackets Green, which was banned in June 1936. Nothing unusual there, it was number 718 on the blacklist. But the London-based newspaper Daily Express decided this particular ban was newsworthy. So they published a story on it in their Irish edition. English newspapers sold in Ireland often had special Irish editions so that they could evade the censorship laws. The main editions published in London were banned so often that publishers decided to produce sanitised versions for their Irish customers. That way they could make money from Irish and English readers without getting caught up in the censor's net. So what I'm saying is there was a spicy and a safe version of the Daily Express. Handy and clever, except there was nothing they could do against libel laws. Patrick Malloy, author of the banned book, sued the Daily Express for defamation as a result of the article. But before we get into this, grab the popcorn and whatever beverage you consume when enjoying a bit of courtroom drama. This is a hilarious and perplexing story for which you will need many snacks. Firstly, we should know what kind of book Patrick Malloy had written. Jackets Green was a kind of fictional account of the conflicts in Ireland from about 1920 to 23. So it covers the War of Independence and the Irish Civil War that followed. I say kind of fictional because this novel is heavily autobiographical. Malloy fought in this time period himself. The dedication signals the blurred line between fact and fiction. Malloy wrote, I dedicate this story to the rank and file of every national movement and secret society in every country to remind them that many a path of glory leads to a graveyard of souls. Fairly fucking grim, you have to say. 
and it feels very much like the voice of a battle-scarred veteran. This warning also sets up the novel as a morality tale, and I do find it hard to read those as pure fiction. Malloy is giving me didactic realism here. If you're not very familiar with this time in Irish history, there's a link in the episode description to one of the many online resources about the violent 1920s. It might be worth pausing and coming back to the episode after you've done a bit of a orientation exercise. Now, I read this book, Jackets Green, in the National Library because there are no copies in all the other libraries. The ban really did work. If you hadn't bought a copy before it was banned, you didn't get to read this book. To be honest, I wasn't mad about it as a novel. It has a fair few creaky moments when Malloy can't resist a bit of moralising. For example, two women characters looking for their relations in prison have the most ridiculously stilted conversation on page 99. And the two are, for bonus points, called Eileen and Maureen, which is just absolutely typical. So I'm going to read this bit out. Yes, Maureen, we're all being deprived of our youth. Boys and girls of our age should be out enjoying life, playing games, dancing, making merry. But what are we doing? Waiting. Waiting for something terrible to happen. Afraid to go out lest we walk into an ambush. Afraid to get home. Afraid to stay at home in case the house is raided, all the time in a state of suspense and terror. How have we spent the last three weeks just searching the jails for our brothers? That's true, and our brothers who are not in jail instead of going out with a football or hurley are dodging around corners with guns in their pockets, hunted and forever on the watch. It's terrible. It will take centuries to wipe out the effect of all of this. What's coming up the street? She added. I mean, yuck. I just think this is so stilted and stupid and also preachy. That last line, it will take centuries to wipe out the effects of all of this. Ugh. It's really a bit grandstanding. And I do hate that it's the women characters who've been given this morality to preach at us. Malloy's male characters do protest against their fate. I'm not saying they don't give out or conceptualise on a grander scale, but their words are much more dramatic and more personal. They wouldn't be the most rounded characters ever either, but they're a little less cut out than these two women. I think Malloy struggles to sustain his fictional narrative because he's telling a story made out of his own experience, his own involvement in historical events. And he gets caught up in his own position and his own opinion on the political events of that time. I'm not saying that no one should write fiction using their own lives, because obviously most writers do. But maybe Malloy shows that it's just harder than it sounds. I'm not sure he did a good job all of the time. The parts of the novel that read best are those with a boy's own adventure flavour, when all the lads are together outwitting the baddies, i.e. the English. About half the novel is set in the War of Independence when the lads were best mates. The other half concerns the Civil War split when friends fracture and took opposite sides on the conflict. So it's a pretty ambitious story arc. There's romantic love, fraternal love, politics, betrayal, hope, compromise and the fate of a nation and its people. 
it's potentially an epic. But Malloy doesn't choose that narrative style. Instead, he writes in a very accessible, popular way that reads quite like a Pulp Fiction novel. He doesn't have massive literary pretensions, which might explain why nobody talks much about him or this novel. He did write another book called Andy Tin Pockets, but as the title suggests, it was for children. I know nearly nothing about him other than that Patrick Malloy was a pseudonym. His real name was apparently Fiona O'Malley. So now that we have an idea of the novel and its flaws, it's time to return to that London court in May 1937. Patrick Malloy was suing the Daily Express because it had published an article that featured quotes from Professor William McGuinness, a member of the censorship board. Malloy's case was that it was contrary to the board's practice and duty to give reasons for their decisions. And we know that this is true. After all, I wouldn't be doing this feckin' podcast if the board told us why they banned things. Malloy argued that the Daily Express article implied the board's opinion and that was that the book was indecent. Um, I have to say that I was a bit confused by this argument because indecency and obscenity were the foundation of the censorship laws. A book could only be banned if it was defined as indecent or obscene. However, Malloy further argued that by calling the book indecent, the newspaper had libelled him personally. Therefore, as the author, he was libelled by the newspaper that reported on the board's decision. So although a censor ends up in the stand, Malloy isn't directly suing William McGuinness. He's suing the Daily Express for publishing William McGuinness's words. It's a clever way of making the censor stand up and account for himself, but actually not sue him directly. And it's an interesting line of argument, quite creative. No one appears to have taken a case like this in Ireland. Part of the reason he used this argument was because of the amount of truth he put into his fictional novel. Part of the reason Malloy was able to make a connection between his novel and himself, the author, is because so much of the fiction represented his personal truth. Giving evidence, Malloy said that his novel contained a true picture of what happened during the Civil War. And I wrote the book in all sincerity and I stand by everything I put in it. So he is identifying very closely with the work, drawing attention to how autobiographical it is. He told the judge and jury that as a soldier in 1922, he stood guard over Michael Collins's body while he lay in state. This placed him at the heart of the most iconic moment in the Civil War, the one we still can't stop talking about, when Michael Collins, the great white hope of the Irish nation, was assassinated near his home place. Collins's death has everything that encapsulates the civil conflict in Ireland internecine conflict, tragedy and pointless waste. Malloy claimed veracity for his fiction by placing himself in the middle of the one of the greatest historical moments of 1922. I know a lot of historians don't like using novels because they prefer obviously factual source material, but there are good arguments for consulting fiction like this. And Malloy wasn't the only ex-combatant 
who wrote fiction about his Civil War experience. There's an excellent book by Shifra Aiken called Spiritual Wounds that looks at this kind of autobiographical fiction if you're interested in reading more. Aiken does mention Malloy among the others that she analyses. Regardless of the crimes of contemporary historians, though, Malloy was extremely comfortable in claiming that his fictional work was factually accurate. When counsel for the Daily Express, Sir Patrick Hastings, read out what he clearly thought were the dirty bits, Malloy claimed that the dialogue was most expressive and that it was a realistic version of soldiers' talk. Sadly, the newspaper reports didn't reproduce this quote, so I don't know what this course talk was, but I found a good candidate on page 78. This is when the three lads, they're Dan, Mick and Tim, and they've been taken prisoner by auxiliary forces and interned in a prison camp. This is their conversation when discussing writing letters to family outside. I must drop a line to me old tart, said Dan. She might send me a few fags. Have you got a girl? asked Tim. Yes, Mrs Fogarty. Oh, ah, she's a decent old bitch when she's not on the spree. Well, I mean, it's not especially foul language, but it is casually coarse in a blokey kind of way. Authentic soldier talk like this wasn't unusual in fiction after the explosion in First World War literature, much of it that was written by men who'd served in the forces. So, by the standards of a war novel, it's not unusual. Dialogue like this also crops up in gritty adventure or crime pulp fiction. Of course, there's one important difference between Jackets Green and all those other things I've just mentioned. Those fictions weren't set in Ireland, with Irish speech put in Irish mouths. So I think Malloy is doing something a little bit different here. And I'm certain this particular exchange would have horrified the censors. True Irish patriots didn't swear like their enemies, the common as muck English soldiers. And it was even worse because Dan's girlfriend was a widow who was much older than himself. And we've already actually met her in the opening chapter. She's not particularly Republican. Uh, She willingly serves booze to the English forces, laughs along at their jokes. I mean, she's all kind of wrong, really. To make her the sweetheart of a brave Irish Republican fighter was heresy of the worst kind. In Ireland, at least. I don't think the English are necessarily as invested in this type of representation. Sir Patrick Hastings, who read the rude bits out to the court, was really hoping this section of rude language would shock everyone. He even apologised to the two women on the jury because the expectation was that this soldier talk would cause a fit of the vapours. During the trial, by the way, each jury member had a copy of Jackets Green on their laps and they read along when the barristers quoted from it. Hastings was representing the Daily Express, the people being sued by Malloy. So he read out these sections to prove his argument that the novel was indecent, as the paper had said. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This was a daring strategy because the Irish censorship system was often ridiculed in Britain as reactionary and ridiculously Catholic. And by now, it's only a few years in, but I think that the reading cultures of the two countries were diverging significantly, all because of censorship. Firstly, they're reading different newspaper editions, and then you've this massive list of banned books. Asking an English jury to agree with the censorship board's opinion was pretty risky. Hastings must have worried about the risk he was taking when Professor William McGuinness was called to give evidence. In 1937, McGuinness was a member of the Censorship of Publications Board. He was also a professor of metaphysics, believe it or not, but he didn't contribute much to that field. He spent a lot of his time on the dangers of evil literature. When the Daily Express had wanted to run a story on the banning of Jackets Green, a journalist rang Professor McGuinness for comment. And boy, he did not disappoint. According to the journalist, he castigated the book very severely. He said in his opinion, the book had not a single redeeming feature and had not a scrap of literary merit. So the journalist wrote this down and then put it in his report which was published in the paper. These comments were, according to Malloy's barristers, defamatory. Now, it's probably not surprising that it was McGuinness who shot his mouth off like this. One contemporary described him as a windbag with a streak of malice. It seems typical that he's the one on the censorship board who attracts a libel case. He did not cover himself in glory when he appeared in court. Sir Patrick Hastings questioned him at length and had so little joy out of it that the judge commented, it is impossible to get an answer out of you, sir. I read this as the legal way of saying, what the fuck are you talking about? All of this now was reported in the big Irish newspapers. The same newspapers that had not given much coverage, or indeed any coverage, to the original banning of Jackets Green. 
the National Dailies and the City Papers in Cork and Dublin covered this libel trial in great detail. In one Dublin evening paper, it was even front-page news. By running his mouth off like this, McGuinness had dragged the censorship board from the shadows into the full glare of press scrutiny. Which makes me laugh almost as much as some of the exchanges between McGuinness and Hastings. This was my favourite. McGuinness, in response to a question from Hastings, had replied, You must allow me to use my intelligence. Hastings, quick as a flash, said, Don't ask me to comment on that. Boom, mic drop. It's just a classic courtroom zinger. This sort of detail was why legal proceedings were such good copy for newspapers. They were just wildly entertaining. The galleries of courts were packed with audiences looking for fun, but if you couldn't go in person, you could always read about it later. In the end, the decision was put in the hands of the jury. They read the book, or at least parts of it, and returned their verdict. They found that Jackets Green was not an indecent novel, and to so call it was defamatory. This meant that Patrick Malloy won his case and was awarded £500 against the Daily Express. Justice Hawke, who was in the chair, noted that to say of an author that he has written an indecent book is capable of being an attack on his character. Well, that's an interesting take on it. None of the other authors whose work was banned in Ireland took court cases like this. There were hundreds of them. Imagine if they had... Imagine if every time the Irish Times listed a book as banned, that they were sued by the author as a kind of a proxy for the censorship board. I mean, it would have been insane, the mind boggles. Admittedly, then, this was a really peculiar case, because it was an English court passing judgment on the Irish state's definition of indecency. After all, McGuinness might have been in Egypt, but the book was banned under statute because it was found indecent. In the English system of censorship, court definitions of decency or not were very important. Texts were banned through courts because people were prosecuted for publishing or distributing obscene material. Therefore, the courts hosted occasional public debates on what obscenity or indecency might look like. Each time a text was brought to court, the prosecutors had to use the Hinkland test from 1868. Under this test, a text could be banned if it had, quote, tendency to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, unquote. The language here, now you'll admit, it's remarkably similar to the Irish Censorship of Publications Act. That's also very concerned with corrupting and depraving and immorality. But the Irish Act took all of these definitions of obscenity out of the court system. Because, of course, before independence, the Irish courts were operating under the same general rubric. In place of the courts, the Irish state created the Censorship of Publications Board. And this was a central agency of the state that operated in relative obscurity. Its definition of indecency was simply promulgated and accepted 
pretty much with a shrug. Hardly anyone talked about its work, except for the Irish Times, which kept up a decades-long crusade against the Act. Until this libel trial then, the board was ignored by all the other national newspapers. I'd just love to know how this trial was received by the readers of the Irish Independent, the Evening Herald, the Irish Press and the Cork Examiner. Added together, that's nearly everyone who read a national daily. Do you think people wrote to their relations in England, asking them things like, Dear Auntie Mary, hope you are well. Please buy a copy of Jackets Green and post it to me. I enclose a postal order to cover the costs. How much, I wonder, did they giggle at Hastings' takedown of McGuinness? I wonder also whether they noticed that indecency was hard to define, that it wasn't easy to agree on the difference between coarse and expressive language. I don't know the answers to any of these questions, but it's important to ask them anyway. I do hope Patrick Malloy had fun spending his £500. The interesting thing about Malloy was that he was a civil servant working for the Irish state. He was based in London in the External Affairs Division, which was why he could sue an English newspaper through the English courts. It seems extraordinarily brave of a government employee to challenge the verdict of the censorship board, which was itself part of the government. I wonder, did his career suffer? Or maybe he resigned when his big cheque landed on the doormat. If anyone knows what happened to Fionn O'Malley slash Patrick Malloy, please do let me know. I'd love to hear it. As for McGuinness, he did not suffer for his indiscretions. He was first appointed to the censorship board in 1933 and he continued a member until his death in 1946. For a few years, from 1942 to his death, he chaired the board. He contributed some infamous lines to censorship history in a parliamentary debate in 1942, which I have already covered both in the Taylor and Anstey and the Land of Spices episodes. He really was one of the most quotable pro-censorship voices of his generation. And of course, us historians, we do love a good line. But he should also be remembered for costing the Daily Express £500 in a libel case. I'm just going to wrap this up with a weird bit of trivia from Wikipedia. I thought Jackets Green, the book title, was probably from a ballad, so I had a little pootle around online. And yes, it is from a ballad composed by an Irish-American Republican. It's not as catchy as many ballads from this time period about similar subjects, so I didn't really recognise the words or the tune immediately. Anyway, while listening to the wolf tones sing it, I was reading the Wikipedia entry, and it claims, and I'm quoting here, Jackets Green is a joking statement by Irish people for any disaster, as is down the glen, meaning lost and hopeless. I had never heard either of these used in this way in my lifetime. But if it's true, it does give a deeper resonance to Malloy's title of Jackets Green. If it means disaster, he did mean that the Civil War was a fuck-up. 
He told the London court he wrote the novel to show, quote, the futility and tragedy of war, unquote. So I'm asking ye, the listeners, did ye ever say jackets green as a synonym for disaster? Is this a piece of silliness someone put up into Wikipedia that sounds plausible but is absolute shite? Because if it does mean a fuck-up, I think we need to revise it. Patrick Malloy got £500 from his day in court, which was worth at least 32000 in today's money. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. Next time, I'm returning to a proper memoir, a legit representation of the genre. In fact, it's almost a foundational text of modern memoir. Till then... Keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.